Why is Canada's Yukon important in motion picture history? This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Audrey Kupferberg to the program from my hometown of Amsterdam, New York. Thanks for joining us, Audrey. Oh, it's a pleasure. Audrey Kupferberg is Professor Emeritus of Film Studies at the State University of New York at Albany. She's well known for her movie reviews, heard on WAMC Public Radio in Albany. She is also a film consultant, archivist, researcher, writer, film appraiser, and regional film producer. With her late husband, Rob Edelman, she is author of books on actor Walter Matthau and comedians Vivian Vance and William Frawley. Audrey Kupferberg will talk with us on the subject of film preservation. What is film preservation and why is it an issue? Well, film preservation is actually the result of the commercial film world uh, starting in the 1890s and uh, going forward till today. Uh, People make films, they become significant in one way or another, and years go by and people desire seeing those films and they're no longer around. So back as far away as the 1930s, uh, archives in Europe and in the United States uh, started preservation programs to protect Uh, maintain prints of films and get hold of uh, master materials on films and uh, keep keep them around for future generations. Uh, One of the big problems was uh, between the 1890s, the beginning of film, big screen film, and the early 1950s, uh, most, almost all films uh, were made on nitrocellulose film stock, uh, putting it in a shorter version, nitrate film. Mm-hmm. And nitrate film uh, can actually self-ignite. Even underwater, <laughs> it can oh, self-ignite. Uh, and uh, and it, it certainly chemically deteriorates through the years. Uh, the the studios didn't care because in the early decades of film, a, f- a motion picture had about it, maybe at the most a year uh, of commercial value. Mm-hmm. It went from the laboratories directly to movie theaters, and after the movie theaters had used up whatever value the prints had, what more did the studios want? So they didn't care if it chemically deteriorated, and uh, they didn't want to pay lab, or excuse me, they didn't want to pay vault fees and insure those films that were no longer worth anything to them. So in a lot of cases, they just let the films rot. Really? Or threw them out, right? I mean, they threw out. Yeah, they did that too. There are all these uh, stories of uh, of studios actually dumping nitrate film material into the Pacific Ocean in L.A. 
And we have stories of uh, people burying films mm. just, just to get rid of them. Well, was there a point there? I mean, all of it wasn't great stuff. I mean, they were just... <laughs> no, all of it was not great stuff. Uh, but but when, when I worked at the American Film Institute... We always uh, were very careful not to make judgments. I mean, not every film is Casablanca or Citizen Kane, but researchers, scholars, and, and enthusiasts through the years have asked for titles that uh, most people don't even know about, uh, but perhaps there's a particular uh, scene in a film with possibly the flat iron building from an angle that doesn't exist in any mm -hmm. other way, or uh, there was a, uh, an actor who uh, committed suicide uh, the next year, and you know people are studying the life of that person. So there are a, a million and one reasons for a film to have some significance. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you about what I... Uh, teased at the beginning of the episode about the the Yukon territory in Canada. How does uh, that? How does the Yukon figure in film preservation? Well, in in a very exciting way. Uh, many many years ago, probably in the early teens of the twentieth century, uh, so over a hundred years ago, uh, the route that film distribution took uh, was from, of course, from New York City and, uh, and Boston and, you know, the, the East Coast. And then films that had had their time in the big cities went to second tier cities, and then they went to small towns. And then when there was really very little uh, commercial life left, they went on a trip to the villages, to the, uh, to the rural American uh, towns. And one of the routes was from uh, Buffalo, New York, to uh, uh, Canada, Toronto, uh, Montreal, and then all of a sudden you're into the rural areas of Canada. And a lot of them wound up in Dawson City, Yukon. There was an audience, a small audience, but an enthusiastic audience. And uh, But after the film played at a theater in, in the Yukon, there was no future for that film print, 35 millimeter film yeah. print. It was the end of the line. That's the end of the line, definitely. And also, the studios did not want to pay to have the film returned to an exchange in New York City or Buffalo or Syracuse or Albany. Uh, why? You know, why bother? <laughs> there was nothing no reason to have that film. So, uh, but the, on the other hand, they couldn't just let it sit unprotected in the Yukon because they were worried that somebody would get hold of these prints and pirate them, you know, make money illegally off them. Mm 
So there was a bank manager in, in Dawson City, and uh, the, the studios had done some work with him, and they trusted him. So they asked him to take responsibility for this growing uh, collection of film prints. So he did, and uh, after a while, it was ridiculous. There were just so many of them. Uh, he, he asked the library in town to keep them for him, and after probably, you know, a hundred or more reels of film, the librarian became very, <laughs> very nervous because of the nitrate uh, composition and said, we're not going to do this. We can't do this anymore. And uh, they kind of shifted around town until uh, there were hundreds, hundreds of prints. Uh, and turns out they were going to be building uh, a, a sports rink an ice skating rink for the town. And they thought, oh, this is terrific. We'll make landfill <laughs> out of, out of the, the, all these hundreds of films. So they buried them uh, and uh, covered the, the sports rink. And uh, years went by, a permafrost layer built up, and nobody even knew after... 20, 30, 40 years, nobody even remembered that there were films underground uh, beneath that rink. Uh, mm -hmm. In 1978, uh, they were ripping up the ice skating rink in order to make um, a, a pool, a swimming pool for the community. Mm -hmm. And when they got the top off the rink, oh my... <laughs> Here were, here were what turned out to be more than 500 reels of film uh, from 1914, 1915, I, I'm not sure how, how far up, into the early 1920s. And uh, many of them were unique prints. I mean, these were lost films, because most silent films are lost. And uh, so here was this invaluable collection of lost silent films uh, from various studios that no longer existed. And there they were. But what good was it to have them sit there? They needed immediate preservation. They needed to be brought to Toronto uh, and Montreal, where the two major Canadian labs were. Um, but w once the permafrost uh, hit the air and started melting, these films were very endangered. So they knew that the Canadian archives, which are really very, very fine, sophisticated archives, knew enough to uh, get some help from the American archives, East Coast American archives. So uh, they went to the American Film Institute, where I was working as an archivist at the time, and uh, the Library of Congress and the National Archives. And they said, we've got to do something quick. So we helped coordinate a supply chain of trucks 
to bring all these films not only to labs in Canada, but also to labs in the Washington, D.C. area. And that was quite a job because they had melted by then, and all the splices in the films were popping, and uh, there, were, there was damage being done. And a wonderful guy whose name I do not recall, who was head of the, the lab in 1978 at the Library of Congress, mm-hmm. uh, he built giant squirrel cages, and he wrapped the, the film, the 35-millimeter reels of film, he un, undid the reels and wrapped them, and all the, the splices popped, but at least the films dried and he was able to have the preservation process begin, which basically is photographing the nitrate onto modern acetate film, mm. making making negatives and other master materials from prints. Uh, so that uh, many, 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 many films were saved uh, that... Uh, we didn't even know existed. Wow. Now, w- w- when they saved them, or they put them onto an, into another format, is that the idea or something that... Well, archival preservation uh, should, I, um, should I say should, or traditionally means that you keep the format. You keep the format that it was uh, created. Uh, I'm not sure how that holds today, uh, but in in the, the 1970s and 80s, uh, before we had so many formats, so many digital formats, and and uh, you know um, just tape, and, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, pre videotape days, uh, we used to be very careful to. Uh, have a 35-millimeter film preserved as 35-millimeter film. Mm. So these were all 35-millimeter, the commercial uh, format, and uh, they were kept. But you could always tell uh, when you were looking at, uh, on a big screen, when you were looking at a film from the Dawson City Collection, because the sides of the film, the uh, the sides of the image, uh, were were deteriorated mm. in most cases. Now, I mean, I hate to put you on the spot, but is there a film or, or, or films that you saw from this uh, collection that you thought, oh, I'm glad we saved that? Um, no, <laughs> I, I like all of them. I, I'm, I'm glad, not, not so much for myself, but I'm glad that the, the world of film history has those films. Uh, some some of them were more interesting than others, but that's such a personal viewpoint that uh, I I wouldn't even go there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because another, you were talking before about how the studios, once the film had served its purpose of making money or showing around the country, they discarded it, and that was especially true, was it not, for silent films? Because once sound came in, they figured, well, this is obsolete. You know, it's like 
uh, horse and buggy. We're not going to, nobody's oh, yeah. going to want to watch this. You're, you're absolutely right. I, <laughs> the studios were were uh, really hungering to dump those films. And uh, there are stories of uh, one particular studio, Universal Pictures, uh, th- that Universal apparently uh, ditched all their silent product, just threw it out. Uh, so Universal Films, when you, when you did come across uh, a, a good quality uh, print or master of a Universal Silent, that was a time for celebration. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, and, and also when television came in in the late 40s and uh, the TV companies needed filler, uh, they didn't have new sitcoms 24 hours a day or, or even mm-hmm. 12 hours a day. Uh, so they, they went to the film studios and they purchased packages of older films. That's, that's really the first time there was a, uh, a, a very powerful new market for old films. Mm-hmm. I wonder, has the same thing happened with the Internet? That the uh, internet needs uh, content. I don't know if I agree with that. I I think the internet. Of, I don't need, I don't even think the internet needs content. I think the internet is overflowing <laughs> with content. Uh, but the the packages. Yeah, may, there are some packages that were purchased for. You mean streaming? Is yeah, streaming or what, okay. how, whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I could see your point with streaming. Uh, there, there are certainly uh, new companies that have arisen, like Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu, who are looking for older films uh, to fill out their their product lines. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh-huh. but but before the late '40s, there there were no future markets for that. We're talking with Audrey Kupferberg, who is a professor of uh, film studies, uh, many years at the State University of New York at Albany. Uh, We're talking about film preservation. We'll be back in just a moment. do want to remind you that we keep the Historian's podcast on the Internet because of uh, your contributions. You can uh, contribute to our GoFundMe campaign. You'll find a link to the GoFundMe page on our main website, which is bobcudmore.com. Dot com. If you'd rather uh, donate by mail, you can make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302, and thank you very much. Audrey Kupferberg talking with us about film preservation. Um, what's the, what is the situation uh, going forward? Uh, you've discussed this uh, nitrate the fragility problem. Uh, are the f- movies or films made today, and again, as you say, in in differing media, are they secure? I mean, uh, or do they also face uh, problems with the technical deterioration? They're as insecure as the old nitrate films uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one, one big reason is that... Uh, Formats have changed over the past 30, 40 years. You know, we think of them as modern formats, 
their, their video formats, their uh, digital formats, but there are so many that an archive has to be a museum, first of all, of the equipment in order to play them back. You know, so many of these early video formats, home video formats and, and uh, laser disc formats and all, all the various uh, more modern formats, uh, the, the equipment has to be saved. And the idea of taking a rare digital format and preserving it in the same rare digital format is probably not practical. So you have to decide what current format do you want to copy <laughs> the old format into, and it's very complicated. And I, I'm on a uh, listserv for the Association of Motion Picture Archivists, and it's amazing how technical things have become. Uh, when, when I was working full-time as a film archivist, I, my colleagues and I left the technical aspects to very few people who worked in laboratories. Nowadays, so many archivists have to know all the, the technical aspects of the changing digital scene. And it's very complicated. It's it's a world outside of my world. One, mm. yeah. uh, I did a little bit of uh, looking on the internet about this topic, and one thing I found was that there's been a boost to film preservation. And let me ask you if you think that's the case, because some of the big names like uh, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, and Martin Scorsese, have uh, in, in the film industry have jumped on this bandwagon? That actually started in the 1970s, well, actually the early 80s, when people like uh, Martin Scorsese and Woody Allen and a few others uh, started campaigns to raise money and raise awareness for film preservation. Uh, and, and then, of course, uh, with Lucas and, and uh, the others, these are, these are people who went to film school Mm -hmm. you know, in, in the old days, the studio directors, I'm not saying they were any, uh, they, that they weren't as talented, they're brilliant people like John Ford, I mean, you know, in the old days, but uh, they didn't go to film school and they didn't have the same attitude towards film preservation as, uh, as this newer crowd of filmmakers. Uh, so yes, it's become important to a lot of uh, a lot of important people in the industry. And it does sound so complex. I mean, is there, in your opinion, or the opinion of fellow archivists, is there a, a, a really good format now that, I mean, if nothing else, you, you should copy your films into that, and that, uh, that, that'll be yeah, I think most people would, most archivists would agree when you have a 35 millimeter film, which would be any film between the 1890s and, uh, well, 1928 or so, 26, 28, uh, you just go right ahead and, and copy it in 35 millimeter 
preserve it in 35 millimeter celluloid. Uh, in the, what happened in the late 1920s happened down the down the pike from us uh, at George Eastman's uh, company, Kodak. They uh, they invented 16 millimeter film, mm-hmm. and that was a major major change for filmmakers, not for Hollywood. Hollywood always, uh, through two more recent years, uh, kept to 35 millimeter film stock. But uh, people, uh, amateur filmmakers, home movie makers, uh, and, uh, and a lot of documentary filmmakers uh, decided to use 16 millimeter for practical reasons. Uh, I, I worked on a, a collection uh, for Bowdoin College up in Maine uh, for almost 12 years off and on, just a part-time thing, uh, working on Arctic exploration footage. Mm-hmm. And they, these Arctic explorers uh, were bringing heavy 35 millimeter cameras and tripods and, and film stock into the frozen Arctic to, uh, to, to document their, their explorations. Uh, but a few of them, starting with the invention of 16 millimeter film, switched over right away to the lighter weight, uh, more convenient format. Uh, and that's too bad because uh, you, you do lose quality when you go to 16 millimeter. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Eastman Kodak a few times. One thing I found online was that at some point their color film uh, was fading. Yes. That was one of the major problems that I encountered in the 70s and 80s when I was working full-time uh, in, in the field. Uh, yes. Uh, because see, this goes back to the same argument uh, that, you know, the studios didn't want to put extra money into product that had such a limited life. So if a film was made in what was called Eastman color and it faded in a few years, they didn't care because a few years was the whole span, mm-hmm. lifespan of that film commercially. Mm-hmm. But from an archivist's point of view, it's horrible. They fade to magenta. So you have a, a kind of a, a monotone of magenta instead of a full color image. Um, and there, there are ways that you can work in the laboratory to bring back color. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a shame that the industry use those processes mm. but uh, say today i mean with major motion pictures uh, do the makers of it you know t- take the effort or do they put it out in a way that it's more easily archived um it it differs from from company to company filmmaker to filmmaker uh some some filmmakers still use uh, celluloid as backup, and uh, others uh, just have a digital master, and that's that. Uh, so it, it really 
it's different for every project. Hmm. What's better? What's, what do you know? Well, from from my point of view, of course, I think it's wonderful to keep some sort of celluloid record. But uh, if I were uh, heading up a commercial organization and uh, had to count every dollar, I right. would say uh, a digital master will do. You know, okay. that's fine. Okay. Well, Audrey uh, Kupferberg, I thank you very much for joining us. Uh, talking about film preservation, you have a good day. Thank you. You too, Bob. Audrey Kupferberg, Professor Emeritus of Film Studies at State University of New York at Albany. You often hear her on WAMC, a public radio, uh, doing uh, movie reviews and uh, talking about films. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.